Welcome to the Code Life Podcast with me, Cole Beach, and my great mate, Nathan Blackaby. Hello, mate. So we're recording this um, from the CVM headquarters we in are. Derbyshire. We are. <laughs> uh, we're um, three days out from... At current time of recording, correct. Lockdown. Yeah. So this uh, one is two. going out 9th of November. It's now the 9th of November. Yeah. Okay. To our loyal listeners. And what we said we'd do is we'd start to um, look at issues and stories yeah. in a more in-depth basis. So we wanted to do stuff. Our podcasts have been 20 minutes, half hour, sometimes 40 minutes, but we're, yeah. we're going longer. Well, we <laughs> felt we were a bit rushed, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we thought we were a bit rushed. Hey, you got peanuts over there. Yeah, what we got here? We got this is an endurance one. We got I got a sauce of protein, high in fibre, peanuts, but actually they're honey roasted, so they're also coated in sugar. That's perfect, perfect combination. Lovely. I've got the crispy mm. coated peanut, sweet mm. chili, especially selected for size, coated in a crunchy, spicy, sweet shell. Oh, they sound quite good. Yeah, I'll open them up. Who made those? Tesco. Oh, Tesco. Mine's a KP. <laughs> anyway. I've got this new book. Um, it's called The Professor in the Cage. Let's have a look at the cover. <laughs> right. yeah. The Professor in the Cage. Subtitle. Mm-hmm. Why men fight and why we like to watch. <laughs> Some of my earliest memories actually of staying up late with my dad watching the boxing. Mm. <laughs> Uh, stayed me ever since, and a couple of times I've put a couple of things on social media about boxing, and um, have received a minor backlash mm. from some people in the church, and um, but other other blokes love it, and I, it did lead me to think. Well, I wonder if anyone's done any research on on the whole nature of men and violence and aggression. Of course, they had, and then I came. There's loads of books on it, and then I came across this one. Um, by this guy called Jonathan uh, Gottschall, um, which actually goes into the psychology of, of violence and fighting and actually looks at why men are drawn to aggression. I thought, well, that actually, that's quite interesting because actually, as followers of Christ, we're peacemakers, we're, we're men of peace, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're not called to be violent men, but there is that thing within us. You know the whole testosterone thing, that whole piece around yeah. violence. More men are in prison, more men are in gangs, more men are likely to be drawn to the armed forces. I yeah. know these things I'm saying now are instantly politically correct, but stuff yep. is actually true. Yeah. Um, more, these men are more likely to die by hands of violent crime. Yeah. Um, men are more likely to like boxing, etc. Mm. Or mixed martial arts. You know, wrestling. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway. What we thought we'd do is this is going to this is going to take a long time to actually go through and analyse over a series of podcasts. Okay. Um, but I thought what we'd do is um, just look at this guy, see what he's got to say, and then take apart various aspects of of uh, men and their nature through history, and then try and apply that to what it means to be walking on a narrow path and how we tame that. Yeah sinful nature yeah. that wants to break out and have a fight mm. <laughs> so anyway this is like uh, this is the the preface of the book all right it's the night of march 31st 2012 
and I'm standing half naked in a chain link cage. It's a strong, it's a strong idea, isn't it? It's, a, it's strong. I'm bouncing restlessly from foot to barefoot, trying to vent the tension building at my core. I'm surrounded by a swarm of men in tap-out t-shirts who are hooting at me over cups of beer. I can see the young man coming through the crowd to break my face to strangle me to sleep. It's like a nightmare. <laughs> I'm 39 years old. I'm an English teacher. Wow. <laughs> At a small liberal arts college. My first book, The Rape of Troy, focused on the science of violence from murder to genocidal war. But I learned all I know from an armchair. I've never experienced real violence. Never even been in a fight. But that's about to change. As I dance and pace, I watch them smear the young man's face with Vaseline, watch them slip a mouthpiece between his lips. He's making his fists in fingerless gloves and I can hear my own gloves creaking as I do the same. People have got the wrong idea about gloves. They think they civilise the sport, but they are the soul of its barbarism. <laughs> <laughs> the fine bones of the hand are no match for a heavy skull. Knuckles shatter on heads. But if you wind the hand in ribbons of gauze and tape them armoured in foam and leather, you've turned the fragile fist into a fearsome club. The young man strides up the steps to the cage, sinews writhing beneath his skin like snakes, the steel door clangs shut behind him, and they drive the bolts home, locking us into a battle until one of us can't. The referee moves to centre of the stage, we'll be fighting very soon. But I'm so relieved that I don't fear the fear, feel the fear that I expected. There's fear, but not the kind of terror that might unman me. Mm. Might tempt me to hop the fence and run for home. <laughs> Mainly I feel a sharpness of focus that I've never felt before. There's nothing in the world except the young man, no sound or scent, no wife squirming in her seat, no corner man murmuring smoothly at my back. The referee stands sideways between us. He shouts to each of us in turn, Fighter, are you ready? We nod. In the next heartbeat, civilization will melt away. The law will disappear. And we will meet at the centre of the cage to try and kill each other. <laughs> I've never seen a young man before and I feel nothing for him but respect. It's interesting. And yet the crowd will cheer as I try and shut down his brain with punches to wrench his joints to throttle his neck until his eyes roll blind in their sockets. The referee yells, fight, and so we do. It was a culmination of a journey that began two years earlier when I was sitting in the cubicle I shared with other English department part-timers mulling the disappointments of my academic career. I had a PhD, my name was on the cover of a few books and I had already lived my 15 minutes of fame but I was still a lonely adjunct making $16,000 per year teaching composition to freshmen who couldn't care less. My career was dead in the water. I'd known it for a long time. Whether this was because my effort to inject science into the humanities was before its time or because that effort was wrong-headed. The question was whether I could summon the courage to move on to something new or at least try to provoke my bosses into firing me. As I paced between my cubicle and the adjoining lounge, a streak of motion caught my eye and I went to the window. There used to be an auto parts shop directly across the street from the English department, but now a new product was on display in the building's big showcase window. There were two young men in a chain-link cage. They were dancing, kicking, punching, tackling, falling and rising to dance some more. There was a new sign 
on the building Mark Schrader's Academy of Mixed Martial Arts. <laughs> I stood at the window for a long time, peeping at the fighters through the curtains, envying their youthful strength and bravery. They were so alive in their octagon while I was rotting in my cube. <laughs> and I began to fantasise. <laughs> That's the wow. opening of the book. So this is this astonishing book called The Professor in the Cage. So this guy's got PhDs. Rotting in my cube. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll come back to the intro in, in, in uh, other episodes. But, but right there and then, there's something that's kind of... You're either going to listen to that and think, no, 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 ridiculous. That's not me. Or you're listening to that and you think... Yeah, I'm I'm rotting in my cube. <laughs> yeah, I'm the Fight Club guy. Yeah, yeah. I've actually got a Fight Club post in my wall. You know, the walls of Fight Club. What an amazing film! But yeah. anything particularly grab you from that, mate? Me? Um, yeah. <laughs> so obviously he's glimpsed for a moment, and sometimes you need these windows of. I don't know whether it's just a light goes on where you, and not necessarily about fighting, but you look at your own life and you say, I'm not actually where I want to be. This isn't bringing me life. This isn't. Yeah, it's not doing it. He's obviously looked at fighting and and seen two <laughs> blokes that are going for something. They're living. They're doing. Yeah, you know, they're in. They're in a crucible of mm. clubbing each other unconscious. Weirdly, so I look at this guy. Civilization is gone. Yeah. We're going to go to war. Yeah. And I look at him and I have nothing but respect. Yeah. But he. He just wants to feel alive. Wants to feel alive. Well, I mean, there's a question. What you know? He goes. He's a 39-year-old professor of English. PhD. PhD. Academically, but he wants to go into mixed martial arts because he wants to feel alive. So I'm taking notes as we're going along here because we're digging deep. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that came out for me was this: I learned all I know from an armchair. (laughs) And I think there's so many blokes who are feeling like they're void of that experience. And you and I have been punched in the face. You know how it feels. You know what it feels like to punch someone in the face. I've been knocked out. Yeah, bad. Stamped on. <laughs> Done something new for this fight. Yeah. I actually have. Yeah. But <laughs> lots of blokes have never been in, and I'm not saying they want to get punched, yeah. but they ask themselves, what would happen if that did happen? Yeah. Can I take it? What does it feel like? I just don't know. So there's a lot of I remember watching this um, documentary about new officer cadets in Sandhurst and actually my nephew is in Sandhurst at the moment and um, one guy applies to the powers and you know because once you go to Sandhurst you try and get sponsored by a regiment and so yeah. on and he, he was sponsored by the powers so that's the regiment he's going to go to and at the end of the documentary you find out he's in Afghanistan fighting and stuff and they say to him why do you want to be an infantry officer you know why do you want to join the parachute regiment and he says yeah. well it's the ultimate test isn't it yes yeah, there you go it's the ultimate test like there's no other. This is the greatest test of all. Can I face up? Can I handle this? <laughs> but what is it? And we might not get to this. But what is it? And we're talking about men. In men that get them to that point where they get. Oh, I want to. I want to see what I can do. I want to see what I can handle. Or just you know, I want to live on the edge. I'm, yeah. My life is so tame. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's something about. Is there something about being tamed? Yeah. And it's not violence for everyone. We're not we're not advocating violence here, right? No. We're not, not saying that. But there is something about we are so tame. We we drive down roads, grey roads with yeah. lines on. Yeah, we've signposts everywhere. This you know, we're we're shackled to our offices. We're so th- can I just say, 
uh, obviously, I want a little crossover here. Cars. Mm. So the new Audi RS6, you'll get me on this. Mm. Four or five years ago, mm. we did a gathering, and a mate of yours, mm. he came along, and he had one. Brutal, quick, loud, yeah. aggressive. Everything about it was crazy. The newest model this year, it, right. it, you can't rev it past 3,000. There's no exhaust sound. It's slower than previous years. And and it's just a silly example, but I think there is a... a <laughs> Not a neutering, but there is a. I don't know. There's something happening that it's unacceptable for to be loud and brash and aggressive and noisy and chaotic and. Right. And a lot of that. I feel some like of us are like some sometimes. of us are meatheads, right? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Mate, you're talking to a bloke who woke up just like yesterday at three o'clock to watch a boxing match. Three a.m. Oh yeah. John, John, Giovanni Davis. Giovanni, yeah. Giovanni, mate, what a fight that was. Was it good? Yeah, amazing. But I regularly am I awake at three in the morning. Up, yeah. I'll UFC. get up early to watch, uh, watch, watch the boxing, yeah. I still like it now. We're going to get a debate on them. Anyway, so this guy goes on to talk about um, there's a white, you know, he feels trapped in his cubicle. Um, and then he, we'll come back to some of his earlier um, chapters later. But he, he fascinatingly goes into different reasons why people fight. And he goes into war games and uh, you know, boxing. And one of the things that he fascinatingly goes into yeah. is the duel. The duel? Dueling. Uh, hang on. As in pistol? Yeah, pistol dueling. He basically looks at the history of dueling so I mean my knowledge of this is limited yeah mine too until I started to research right, this for okay. the podcast so like the turning back walk paces or <laughs> yes. the western in the street yeah. where they're looking at just that apparently there's like a massive code of honour behind it really yeah and um, in this book here he talks about the the famous duel between by Hamilton and obviously there's the musical Hamilton but it's not the story that people think. So this is the real story of Hamilton. Now, this is going to take some time. What we're going to do, we're going to look at the, read the account of the Hamilton duel. Then we're going to look at the culture of honour. We might deviate and actually look at the kind of stuff yeah. that they used in duels and also um, the co the actual code of honour behind dueling. Because okay. it's quite fascinating. And then we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I have to, back to the book. I have to take you back more than 200 years to tell you the story of a different fight, a story you only think you know. Before dawn on November 23rd, 1801, Hamilton, his second, and his surgeon eased aboard a wobbly dinghy. And a ferryman rowed them away from Manhattan and its laws against dueling mm. to the Jersey side of the Hudson River, where clearly they could duel. Yeah. Hamilton crunched through the forest into a clearing where his adversary was already busy with his own second, clearing away branches and pacing off the agreed distance, 10 paces, or around 30 feet. Okay. Hamilton stood off to one side, eyeing his opponent through the slanting dawn light, feeling no hatred towards him. <laughs> but they're fighting to the death. Yeah. <laughs> he okay. was thinking, how strange and stupid this is. 
He was thinking, don't let your hands shake. He could hear the seconds droning through their last pro forma attempts at reconciliation, although both Hamilton and his opponent had much to be sorry for, neither could say so for fear of appearing wow. cowardly. Wow. But come back to this whole, it's all about face and honour. Wow. It's, it's fascinating. And then you, you start to think about what it means to be a man of God and you yeah. know, walking in yeah. humility and you know being wrong. And yeah. Anyway, the two men would fight with a pair of dueling pistols that belonged to Hamilton's uncle the pistols were handcrafted gorgeously filigreed objects of art and death with dark walnut stocks and gleaming barrels they're about the size of sword of shotguns oh. <laughs> and with their 0.54 caliber balls could open a man about as wide the seconds loaded the weapons each using a ramrod to pack in powder ball and wadding then handed them to the duelist by the barrels. Hamilton took his place and tried to avoid his address's gaze. It was his first duel, and he could not believe how close together they were standing. They could almost duel by spitting. And that's what we don't realise. It's ten paces each. It's... Now, yeah, we're in the far. office at the moment, and we're pinchers sitting doing his work. Let me pace ten. Hang pace on. ten. I'm Hold just on. interested in this. No, sure. I'll take a photo. So, from um, the window... Mm. And, and post this out on the night when this goes out. Yeah, yeah. Right, ten. So from me to you. Yeah, no, but then I've got to go. Oh, you've got to go that way. As well. Yeah. It's the length of this room and a bit. Right. Long. Yeah. Go. I would think. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, before we go any further, let me uh, let me read you this article on dueling pistols. So we'll look at, because so, it's like a sawn-off shotgun pistol. Right. And they, they come in this beautifully presented box. Um, Mate, as you're talking, I'm looking online at them. A dueling pistol, this is Wikipedia. A dueling pistol is a type of pistol that's manufactured in matching pairs to be used in a duel. Because obviously they wanted no one to have an advantage. Yes. When duels are customary. Dueling pistols are often single-lock, flint-lock or percussion black powder Pistols which fire lead ball, they're made in identical pairs but both duelists on the same footing. Yeah. Not all fine pairs of pistols are actual dueling pistols that they may be called so. Mm. This is what I know. Standard flintlock pistols can have a noticeable delay between pulling the trigger and actually firing the bullet unless precisely tuned. So basically, you go. <laughs> we just hold it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, got, you, can't, you can't fire it and duck. You can't, you know, you've got to, you've got to hold your aim. Just hold it there. Hold your aim. Component parts were manufactured hand finishing adjusted with great care and precision, which made dueling pistols much more costly than standard firearms of the period. Wow. Mate, they're beautiful. They had long barrels, 10 inches, yeah, yeah, and fired yeah. large, heavy bullets. They could weigh, they could weigh, weigh 13.9 grams. Seven thousand pound, mate. Look. Yeah, they were the, the muzzle velocity was eight hundred thirty feet per second. Wow. The the uh, injuries um, often result in fatalities because of the emergency medicine at the time. Right. Most English bullets had smooth bores, but some had scratch rifling, a form of rifling. Mm. 
Listen to this. In continental Europe, the use of smoothbore pistols was considered cowardly and rifle pistols were the norm. The wow. short range most duels took place at, combined with the accuracy of rifle pistols, meant their use substantially increased the chance of fatality. Well, there was also, um, listen to this, a little spin off before we go back to the book. Mm. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, dueling became a sport in which shooters fired at each other using non lethal rounds, consisting of wax bullets in a cartridge without any powder charge. The bullet was propelled only by the explosion of the cartridge's primer. Participants wore heavy protective clothing and a metal helmet, <laughs> similar to a fencing mask, but with an ice cream of thick glass. Pistol dueling was an associate non-medal event at the Olympic Games in 1906 and 1908. I never knew that. Wow. So they actually used to do sport dueling with wax bullets in use of a heavy clothing to avoid getting hurt. We could do that with airsoft. We could. Mm. My question is, why were they doing this? Yeah, go on. I mean, could we have a disagreement and I say to you, hang on, mate, let's settle this with a duel. Well, it's quite severe. Let me go to the artofmanliness.com website okay. where it answers this precise question. Oh, there you go. I was trying to find it. In our modern age, solving a problem by asking a dude to step outside is generally considered an immature, low-class thing to do. <laughs> no one does that anymore, do they? No. But for many centuries, challenging another man to a duel was not only considered a pinnacle of honour, but was a practice reserved for the upper classes. Those deemed by society to be true gentlemen. So, whereas now we go, all right, let's settle it, let's go have a punch up, yeah. we think, how ignorant. Back then it was what the posh boys did. This is this a man may shoot the man who invades his character as he may shoot him who attempts to break into his house. Samuel Johnson. Really? While dueling may seem barbaric to modern men, it was a ritual that made sense in a society in which the preservation of male honour was absolutely paramount. So, that's interesting. A man's honour was the most central aspect of his identity, and thus its reputation had to be untarnished by any means necessary. Yeah. Duels, which were sometimes attended by hundreds of people, were a way for men to publicly prove their courage and manliness. In such a society, the courts could offer gentlemen no real justice. The matter had to be resolved with the shedding of blood. It originates from single combat, and it references here the battle, for instance, between David and Goliath, which is interesting. It's a duel. Yeah. It's one-on-one -on -one to settle a war. That's interesting, isn't it? In this, this article, not a Christian thing, actually yeah. references David and Goliath. Yeah. Um, anyway, dueling in Europe, a coward, a man incapable either of defending or revenging himself, wants one of the most essential parts of the character of a man, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. It was trial by combat, it says, a, a form of justice in which two disputants battled it out. Um, uh, let me just scroll down here to the um, a quote about Christianity and dueling. Yeah, go on. Dueling and violence. Andrew Jackson said, The views of the Earl, Earl are those of a Christian. But unless some mode is adopted to frown down by society, the slanderer, who is worse than a murderer, wow. <laughs> the slanderer is worse than a murderer, all attempts to put down dueling will be in vain. Wow. Yeah, he's a Christian. Well, but if we slander him, we'll, we'll have a duel. <laughs> Here's something I've found. Honour was a most crucial concept for gentlemen and ladies tied up with one's reputation. The importance placed on defending honour 
made refusing a duel challenge nearly impossible. Yeah. So just by the fact that you've called me out yeah. to keep face and honour in front of my lady and those that respect yeah. me, I'll have it. Let's go. Mm. <laughs> Brutal. Brutal. Isn't it? Yeah. Even though you like you read, you don't really want to be there. No. Don't really want to be doing this, but I've but got what to. am I doing here? Well, you called me out. <laughs> so I've got to go. I've got to go. Hamilton was um, like the United States first secretary of treasury or something, <laughs> and the person he he um, who killed him. I sort of come to this later, maybe in the next episode. Was the vice president? <laughs> called him out. Yeah. Shot him. And Hamilton's son died in a duel. Anyway. People watch the play, no, the musical, they've got no idea what really went on. <laughs> anyway, let me read this. Oh, I'm in this dot com. Despite putting on a courageous front, no gentleman relished having to fight a duel and risk both killing and being killed. Thus, duels were not often not intended to be fights to the death, but to first blood. A duel fought with swords might end with one man simply scratched the arm of the other. In pistol duels, it was often the case that a single volley was fired and assuming both men had survived unscathed, satisfaction was deemed to be achieved through their mutual willingness to risk death. Men sometimes aimed for their opponent's leg, or even deliberately missed, desiring only to satisfy the demands of honour. Wow. Only about 20% of duels ended in fatalities. There's only 20%. <laughs> it's too intense. It's quite a lot. <laughs> Jaws founded on greater insults than man's honour, however, were often designated to go well beyond first blood. Some were carried out under the understanding that satisfaction was not gained until one man was incapacitated. Now, it goes on to say how this must seem really barbaric to us. There's whole articles here about how much pain you're allowed to show and yeah. all this kind of... So, um, let me... Uh, there's bits here about dueling necessities uh, and the progression to pistols and swords. But yeah. let me let me read the code duello, the, the Irish code, the dueling code. I've just looked at that. A duel was considered a necessary part of a young man's education. When men had a glowing ambition yeah. to excel in all manner of feats and exercises, they naturally conceived that manslaughter in an honest way was the most chivalrous and gentlemanly of all their accomplishments. There you go. No young fellow could finish his education till he exchanged shots with some of his some of his acquaintances. First two qualifications always asked as to a young man's respectability and qualifications, particularly while he proposed for a lady's wife. They were what family is he of and did he ever blaze? I participate in a duel. Dueling code evolved over the centuries as weapons and notions of honour changed. Proper dueling protocol in the 17th and 18th centuries were recording in works such as the Dueling Handbook by Joseph Hamilton and a Code of Honour by John Lyde Wilson. And then it goes on to describe uh, some of the codes of honour. Um, let me let me uh, let me read some of these. Despite our romanticised notion of duels as being fought only over the most grievous of disputes. Jaws could often arise from matters most trivial telling, such as telling another man he smelled like a goat or spilling ink on a chap's new vest. But they were not spontaneous affairs, in which an insult was given and the parties marched immediately outside to do battle. A jaw had to be conducted calmly and coolly to be dignified, and the preliminaries could take weeks or months. A letter requesting an apology would be sent. More letters would be exchanged. 
and if peaceful resolution could not be reached, plans for the duel would commence. It's like a soap opera in the background. You wow. send a letter. Let's resolve this. They go, no, I'm not. There's a big build-up to it. And they all know they're going to go there in the end. <laughs> the first rule of duelling was that a challenge to duel between the two gentlemen could not generally be refused without the loss of face and honour. There you go. If a gentleman invited to a duel and he refused, he might place a notice in the paper denouncing the man as a poltron <laughs> for refusing to give satisfaction in a dispute. Actually put a notice in the paper. He's not I challenged him. And he's not fighting me. To the death. Devoured. In the local rag. Bloke wouldn't be able to go down the pub with his mates, would he, hear me? Do you want to know the get out? Cool. One could dishonourably refuse a duel if challenged by a man he didn't consider to be a gentleman. <laughs> this rejection was the ultimate insult to the challenger. <laughs> so it'd be like Pincher over there, he says, Well, I want to fight you in a duel. And you go, Nah, you're not, you're not gentlemanly enough. He's like, Oh, I'll flip my neck. See And The most common characteristic of a duel between gentlemen was the presence of a second. What's that? The seconds were gentlemen chosen by the principal participants whose job it was to ensure that the duel was carried out under honourable conditions, on a proper field of honour with equally deadly weapons. More importantly, it was the seconds, usually good friends, who sought peaceful resolution to the matter at hand in hopes of preventing bloodshed. Once the challenge to duel was given, several issues had to be settled before the matter could be resolved. The challenger would allow first his foe the choice of weapons and the conditions of combat and the time would be set for the event. Seconds are responsible for locating a proper dueling ground, usually a remote area away from witnesses right. and law enforcement. Since dueling remained technically illegal in most states in America, they're rarely prosecuted. Duels are sometimes even fought on sandbars in rivers, where the legal jurisdiction of the time was hazy at best. Honour was not only given for showing up for the duel, proper coolness and courage under fire was also required to uphold one's reputation. A gentleman was not to show his fear, if he stepped off the mark, his opponent's second had the right to shoot him on the spot. What? Say that again. A gentleman was not to show his fear. If he stepped off the mark, his opponent's second had the right to shoot him dead on the spot. So if he saw him move... So I'm fighting you. Yeah. Steve's your second. We're back to back. I, I move. No, I try and dodge yeah. him. Yeah. He can shoot me dead. Wow. Yeah. Mate, these rules. I googled it. The <clears throat> 26 Commandments. <laughs> the Irish Code. Rob. Mate, some of these are amazing. Mm. Let me <laughs> let me find you a good one. There's some on swords. There's some on... Uh, how. So, the challenged has the right to choose his own weapons unless the challenger gives his honour. He is no swordsman, after which, however, he cannot decline any second species of weapon. I mean, the, the rules. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. An insult to a lady under a gentleman's care or protection to be considered as by one degree a greater offence than if given to the gentleman personally and to be regarded accordingly. Leave me the detail. Well, let me go back to this book as we... Um as we conclude this first episode on um, the art of fight, oh, go on. Let me read it. If swords are used, the part is engaged until one is well blooded, disabled, or disarmed, or until after receiving a wound and blood being drawn, the aggressor begs a pardon. <coughs> so you've got to keep going until they literally say, I've had enough. Stop, you win. That's right, you've seen it. Tap out. Tap out. <laughs> 
Well, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Um. Back to the book. This is back to the Hamilton duel. The seconds loaded the weapons, each using a ramrod to pack in powder, ball and wadding, then handed them the duelist by the barrels. Hamilton took his place and tried to avoid his adversary's gaze. It was his first duel and he couldn't believe how close they were standing. They could almost duel by spitting, as you recap. <laughs> yeah. We don't know for sure, but the men may have arranged themselves in classic dueling stances that they were designed to shrink the profile and shield the vital organs. Wow. If so, they would have positioned themselves sideways to each other, sucking in their bellies and tucking their chins. We do that when we take photos, don't we? Every time. <laughs> and tucking their chins to hide their necks, they would have turned their hips in hoping of taking a low shot in the buttock and not the groin. <laughs> Thus contorted, they would have stood with their pistols dangling, awaiting the commands of fire. When the command came, they would have not have fired with their arms extended to full length. Instead, they would have fired with their right elbows cramped tight to their ribs so that their pistols and arms could shield their torsos. Present, said one of the seconds, commanding the jewelers to raise their weapons of fire, but neither man did. They just stared at each other. Across the stillness of the clearing, their breath clouding the morning air. They stared at each other for a long time, perhaps hoping that someone might still call this madness off and they could embrace and part as friends. And after a full minute had passed, <laughs> Hamilton raised his weapon. The clearing erupted with two near simultaneous explosions. The lead balls passed each other in flight, one sizzling wide into the trees. The other steering around Hamilton's gun arm to bite into the soft flesh beneath his ribs. The ball punched a fist-sized hole through his innards before exiting through his left side and lodging in his opposite arm. And Hamilton fell face first to the earth. Once back in Manhattan, he lay in bed for more than 20 hours, writhing in agony and trying to die bravely. And now we come to the part of the story you don't know. When Hamilton's father received the news of the catastrophe, he raced to his son's bedside, the father, Alexander Hamilton, the man whose handsome face still graces the $10 bill, climbed carefully into bed with his doomed son, Philip. So this was his son. And gave vent to his grief. One of Philip's friends was looking on and said that Alexander's sorrow beggared description. The 19-year-old Philip was Alexander's eldest and favourite child, the one he doted on as a baby, and later called the brightest as well as the ablest hope of my family. And when Philip was buried, Alexander had trouble walking to the graveside. As one observer wrote, he had to be half carried to the grave of his hopes. And yet, less than three years later, still mourning Philip and knowing he was in the wrong, Alexander had himself rowed away from Manhattan to the Jersey banks of the Hudson, directly across the river from 42nd Street. And there at Week Hawken, on a lovely summer morning, he was greeted by the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. When the two men fired... Hamilton fell, perhaps cut down by the very same pistol that had killed his son Philip. Gut shot like his son. Hamilton's death throes lasted 38 hours. His agony was, according to his surgeon, almost intolerable and not much deadened by opium. Philip Hamilton was killed by one of his father's many political adversaries, a 27-year-old lawyer named George Eker. One night at a theatre, young Philip, possibly drunk, stormed Eker's private box with a friend and abused the lawyer for criticising his father in a speech. 
Afterward, Philip would apologise, wouldn't apologise for his insults. He was too enraged. They ended up going to a duel. Aaron Burr called out Alexander Hamilton for more serious affronts. Hamilton was friendly outwardly to Burr when they met on the street or socialised in each other's homes, Wall Street homes. In later years, Burr would sometimes speak of my friend Hamilton, whom I shot. <laughs> <laughs> but Hamilton deeply distrusted Burr's politics and character and said that he felt a religious duty to oppose his career. And rather than confront Burr openly, however, Hamilton opted in a parlance of the day to slit Burr's throat with whispers. On the eve of the duel, Hamilton tried to put his affairs in order, updated his real wrote a letter to his wife Elizabeth, who he dressed as the best of wives, best of women. The letter explained that he was fighting Burr with the greatest reluctance, reluctance and only after exhausting all other options. This was true. Burr and Hamilton had traded endless letters back and forth through their seconds, with Hamilton working loyally dodges and splitting verbal hairs, trying to weasel out the mess and the technicality. He was reluctant to fight because he didn't hate Burr and felt that duelling was radically at odds with good Christian behaviour. Mm. This is the punch on. He's mm. Christian. Christian of his time. Mm. Moreover, Hamilton knew that if he died, his family would struggle to pay their debts. So why, when they had so much to live for, did the Hamiltons, father and son, recklessly risk their lives over such paltry stuff Alexander Hamilton was a co-author of the Federalist Papers and the architect of the American financial system. Couldn't he do the cost-benefit math? To us moderns, the killing of a former Treasury Secretary by a sitting Vice President sounds fantastically exotic. Yeah. Well, imagine a hullabaloo if, if Cheney had killed Clinton, etc., etc. But a little more than two centuries ago, there was nothing particularly strange about the Burr-Hamilton affair, not the high social and political status of the combatants, nor the way that the effect a deadly gunfight seemed out of proportion to the cause. Brackets gossip. Throughout the 500-year history of Euro-American dueling culture, aristocratic men were generally prepared <coughs> to kill each other at the drop of a hat. Yep. In sharp contrast to modern days, modern times in those days it was educated rich and powerful men blue bloods newspaper owners congressmen future presidents british prime ministers who are most likely to shoot or stab each other over disses yeah. it's easy to see why men fight over precious and necessary things such as food wealth or the love of a woman the judas so often killed and were killed over trifles loose words rumors impertinent looks judas imperiled the lies for something they couldn't touch see or even precisely define their personal honour. This is the riddle of the duel. How could intelligent men risk so much over what seems like so little? Well, <laughs> so I just wrote down a line there. We're up to about forty minutes, so we're doing solid. Uh, it's a solid podcast. Solid podcast. But you, there's a line there to us moderns, to us moderns, and I think interestingly. Looking backwards at this, you you apply a filter of what are we in twenty twenty we in yeah twenty twenty mm. the way we think about name family name honor yeah. value identity all that stuff yeah we got you know but if someone let's say someone took to Twitter and was slandering the Beach family name you'd be like well I've had that yeah yeah and you got through it you think what an idiot yeah. zone him out block him block him. 
But 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Fight him. You say, hang on, you're not doing that. Because actually, the family name is us. You you call one us. Well, what is a modern day duel? Yeah, I don't know, but... I don't think I don't think we, we can't look back with the lens of today and say well, it don't make sense because it does and it did then it was everything yeah if you know if someone was challenging the Blackaby name we might well as not be alive then, you know but then apply the apply the biblical you know, the biblical teachers so these guys were Christians yeah and they're fighting to the death over a slight over a bit of gossip a tarnishing of honour yeah like Romans twelve is so clear. Bless those who persecute you. Leave them for God's wrath. Mm. It's mine to avenge, says the Lord. Mm. On the contrary, if your enemy, you know, actually you feed him, clothe him, love him, pray for him. <laughs> but they were Christians for a filter of their time, weren't they? Yeah. And I wonder, here's a little side thought. Mm. What will people look back on us in 100 years' time and think, well, they got that wrong? Would that be social yeah. media? Maybe. Where we attacked each other on social media, hated each other, well, sparred with each other. You and I have seen enough Christian dueling on social media, haven't we? Bad. Taking each other out. Bad. To love each other. Yeah. I don't know. But then you've got Peter, he, in, in terms of honour, like he says, I, I, I will not be crucified the same way as my saviour. Do me upside down. Yeah, upside down. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> something else yeah yeah but um, yeah modern day equivalent I guess it would be social media and also I, I don't see it as much now but churches preaching on or preaching in a style that corrects the theology of other church denominations or tries to correct it you know I think I guess it's about unity at the end of the day but so I, I've stopped using social media, Twitter especially. Yeah, so I'd come off Twitter and I've recently gone back into the fray. So I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. I feel I've got a few things to say. Pistols at dawn. It is. But it's interesting, isn't it? This whole thing where they had the seconds trying to help their their fight, their Julius get out of it. Yeah. You know, dozens and dozens of letters and get outs and. But they realised they couldn't. They couldn't ride out of it because their honour was at stake. And yeah. I actually think what happens on social media. I mean, not the same as shooting each other off a sort of shotgun. No. But I think what happens is people are so insecure. And a lot of this is insecurity, and your honour is insecurity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's insecurity. Someone slagged you off on social media. Ah, that's all right. God knows, isn't he? That's all right. Now, sometimes people can be very pompous or arrogant or they know how to press a button that winds yeah. you up no, they totally do yeah and I think what happened there with the duelling thing was culture my time is where we just shoot each other because you insulted me and so what's a modern day equivalent of a second it's a mate you go to and go <laughs> I've got have you seen this it. tweet it's really got to me that's it what do I need to do here yeah talk it out yeah, and then all the so pistol. Like, me, you, and Steve are a little group like that, don't we? we? Do, yeah. yeah, you know, we call each other fair, out. And it works, doesn't it? I think you wouldn't ever want anyone to see what we talk about. It's fair to say, but yeah. a lot of potential nightmares are diffused because of that honesty. Yeah, and yeah, close friendship. Do you think, Steve? 
<laughs> he's not even listening. He's not even listening. <laughs> he's totally tuned out because he's boring. Yeah. Huh? No, but a lot of like we de-escalate things because we have That's honest world chat. Yeah. Or if you saw me post, this doesn't happen, I don't think. But if you saw, no, no, maybe once or twice, say, look, I don't think you should post that. Yeah, delete that. Yeah, yeah delete that one. <laughs> no, I don't think you should say that. Yeah. Yeah. Steve just said there's got to be ultimate trust and confidentiality. Yeah. That, that is, all blokes need a second. That's the title of this podcast. All blokes need a second. I'll write it down, mate. Also, I like the fact that if the second saw the challenger move or shoot try and take, he's shooting. That's and that's work. justifiable. Now, Why did you shoot him? Oh, he moved. Cheers, bro. Right, so in other words, we're trying to solve something. We're sitting down with some other bloke, or we're trying to, and the other bloke tries to stab you in the back or shift his position. Take him out. Take him out. <laughs> Hang on, so how do we operate this with grace and mercy and uh, forgiveness? Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> we won't run that filter on it. No, that's it. Every bloke... Cross the line. Pistols at dawn. Who's honey-coated peanuts or something? Yeah. yeah. So, isn't, this is a really interesting... The wider narrative here we're trying to answer, well, not even answer, but explore, mm. is why do blokes like violence... Why are we drawn to it? Yeah, it's going to be a... And I'm there, I'll be honest. I don't like fighting personally, but I watch fighting all the time. We're going to go into um, the nature of MMA, mixed martial arts, uh, UFC. And we're going to particularly talk about fear yeah. going forward. And um, there's a whole chapter on the riddle of the jaw. Um, there's so, a whole bunch of stuff here. There's a chapter called Monkey Dance, which is really fascinating. <laughs> we're going to go through. This is interesting because we were talking offline about this, <clears throat> and we're in an interesting time with COVID because last the the last Sunday Night Live we did actually three weeks ago, we had some videos on wrestling. About three weeks ago. Yeah. No. Well, it will be when this is aired. Oh right. But um, we we showed some wrestling intros where Triple H, Undertaker, others. Mm. coming into massive fanfare mm. and excitement and drama mm. and we're in a time now so UFC before mm. had I don't know what they'd have 40,000 in attendance mm. and millions at home now there's two three hundred people in the audience and their team their staff their coaches trainers how many people viewing uh, I don't know about numbers online pay-per-view but ticket sales on the door obviously they can't have events um, and whilst it's drastically changed the the overall drama of the event, mm. it, there's something even more brutal about it. And it's weird, because before, when in UFC, when guys would fight, you, you wouldn't be able to hear much over the roar of the crowd. And there you was can hear it end, You can hear everything. You can hear clubbed fist on face, shin on shin. I mean, it is brutal. You can hear, yeah. Because it's more stylized before, isn't it? Yeah, and, and yeah. But you get lost in the drama of it. Now, it, you can literally hear people getting hurt. But it it hasn't put anyone off. And everyone thought when Dana White made Fight Island in Abu Dhabi, you know, everyone thought there's no way this will work because you, you you're trying to create what the UFC had but with no audience no energy no atmosphere but it's created a new thing 
and I think that's quite interesting. And, and boxing aren't quite there, but I think they're on the way to it. So like I said to you, I watched this John Giovanni Davis fight the other night in America, and they had eleven thousand in attendance. And in, by comparison, it looked empty. Yeah. But you could still hear them cheering and stuff. But watch a UFC fight, you hear nothing. It's silent, other than the two guys fighting for their life in the ring. And it's it's added a different dimension to mixed martial arts, to that combat, that violence yeah. of sport that, that so many guys watch. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time. But I, I'll be interested to know why we're drawn to it. And it's the old Coliseum days, right? I mean, I don't know if you've seen much UFC, but Bruce Buffer comes out, big announcement, big fanfare. He does the fighting out of the blue corner, you know, mixed martial arts, and he really ramps it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's show. Coliseum. It's a Coliseum of today. Have you seen the bare knuckle stuff they're doing now? No. So they've tried to over the last year or so, they've tried to well they have legalized bare knuckle fighting. Yeah. And they're trying to build the profile so it becomes as popular as UFC. And it's it's on YouTube and stuff like that. I mean they've got they've got a lot of fights. They're a long way in. Well, there's a lot of unlicensed boxing back yeah. in the day, weren't there? Yeah. But personally, for me, it's quite hard to watch. It's too too much for me. So over the top. Whereas, I think the thing I like about UFC is you've got two guys who are skilled, skilled professionals. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's seeing which. Yeah, which martial arts yeah. wins rather than just punch each other in the face. I like going on YouTube and doing, you know, Shaolin Monk versus Boxer, you know. Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, wait, we could do a whole series on this. Steven Seagal, was he fake? Was he genuine? Oh, I think he's a problem, but he's, uh, I think he has. Have some... you seen him recently? Yeah, he's stuff a big he says he's is a, stupid now. No, but he's a bit, he's a big guy now, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> big physically. He is. Yeah. I don't know, but there's there's a lot in here, but. Yeah, he was the first person to open a dojo out of Japan, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. Aikido. I think it's for real. My brother trained a bit in Aikido. And to be fair, some of the locks, holds, key energy, moving, you know, it was like pretty impressive. Mm. It was. Like, it wouldn't work on the street if someone's coming at you, no. I don't think, in reality. Anyway, we'll, um, we'll get back to this and think about what is it that drives men to love boxing and love fighting and what is it about yeah. this honest stuff and, but along the way we're going to dance around some of the historical facts yeah and we are this is interesting this whole code of honour stuff yeah. grips men doesn't it yeah and just going back to your initial statement from the book and I think this is relevant because some blokes will be like no nah, I'm not into fighting this ain't for me it's not just we're not trying to just talk about fighting we're trying to uncover a narrative of guys that look and say the cube I'm in is rotting I want to be in an octagon or something different that brings me life yeah and I think that resonates whether it's and you work. ain't gonna find it in the cage yeah yeah exactly yeah thanks for listening Code Life Podcast with me and Nathan Blackaby <laughs>